Okay, so the next guest on the podcast, I am delighted to introduce. We have a psychologist introducing, ladies and gents, Sylvia McCarthy. Thank you, Kate. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. So I just, I'm really passionate about therapy and I think that it's something that a lot of people will benefit from. And yeah, I just think what you do is absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much for coming on. And if you'd like to just introduce yourself a little bit into what you do for work and how you got to where you are, I think that'd be great, a great place to start. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me here, Kara. Uh, I'm really yes. delighted. So my name is Sylvia McCarthy. I am a psychologist. I'm also a hypnotherapist and I am based in Ireland, Cork. I work in private practice, mainly with adults, also with adolescents, 16 plus, and sometimes with couples. I am from Poland originally. And after I graduated from my university, me and my friends, we just had the spontaneous decision just to, you know, to Ireland because why not? So I lived in Dublin for 13 years and I worked in corporate multinational environment because when I finished psychology, I was very passionate about going to um, HR and talent acquisition training, things like that. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Uh, during the years I spent in uh, multinationals, my outlook on my dreams and my passion, it's changed. And due to my difficult personal situations, because, you know, psychologists, they experience traumatic experiences, traumatic situations, losses, and things like that as well. So that changed me completely. And then I decided that actually, no, I'm done with multinationals. I would like to go back to my psychology and start, um, work more with people, more in clinical environment. So I started working initially with a psychological center in Dublin. I worked there for a few years and then a few years later, I moved to Cork. Big, big change. Started everything from scratch. Really, literally, I didn't know anybody. Well, I knew a few, few people. And I focused uh, primarily on um, expanding my private practice. And uh, five years later, now, I um, I am happy where I am. I'm still working in my private practice. I'm doing loads of, you know, trainings and, and I keep educating myself. I've been working with uh, many, 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 many people with uh, different backgrounds, not only different social economic backgrounds, but also from different national ethnical backgrounds. Um, I've had clients from China, from Japan, from Iceland. Australia. So I do have a good, great experience. And, you know, because everything in life changes, you know, the only thing that we can be sure of in life is that is the change. It's not only that the world around us changes, but we are changing as well. So my um, approach or my outlook on my practice has changed a little bit as well. Maybe not changed, but I started developing interest in a particular aspect of psychological support, which is supporting survivors of uh, abuse, domestic abuse and sexual abuse as well. So um, in past few months, um, in past actually year or so, 
I did relevant trainings and I am working with, um, at this point, mainly with women, survivors, female survivors of domestic and sexual violence. But I also continue working with um, young adults, uh, adolescents, um, uh, mature adults, and, and sometimes with couples as well. I still live in Cork, in Ireland. It's a beautiful part of the world. I'm happy here. And yeah, that's, that's about me. If there is anything else you would like to know. Wow. I, I love it. I think you just have such a great amount of experience. And I think I th it's one thing that I know from you is you're so passionate about what you do. I'd love to, if you could just give us an insight as to like, why is your why? And why is it something that you are so passionate about? Really, my, my dad was my inspiration to become a psychologist. He was the person who uh, introduced me to different ideas, different concepts. Uh, he was quite interested in psychology himself, even though he didn't, uh, he worked in a completely different profession. Um, and, um, you know, when I was a child, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't understand that. I didn't see that obviously, but now as an adult, I understand that my dad suffers depression. And I think, uh, seeing, um, uh, my dad, um, struggles, uh, because back then we were living in a completely reality, completely different reality in Poland, you know, there was different system. Everything was different. And of course we, uh, we had different, uh, challenges at the time. Uh, our parents, um, had different challenges, but I particularly remember my dad as a very kind, gentle soul, probably too kind and too gentle for this world. And, um, I remember him struggling, which I didn't understand, as I said at the time, but now I understand that he suffered, uh, depression, he suffered from depression. And, uh, that kind of helped me, um, to set out, um, my, my, my career path, because, uh, I remember my dad going actually to psychology is going to, uh, different, um, um, support groups, uh, back then, you know, in the eighties in Poland, which wasn't popular at all. And I was fascinated. Uh, by the stories he was telling me, what they were doing, how they w were working, what was the psychologist, um, you know, doing, telling them and so on. And that really fascinated me. And I decided I would like to do that. I would like to be able to help people. I would like to be able to, you know, make change in people's life. And so I decided to study psychology and, uh, I am here where I am now. Uh, but particularly because of, uh, the fact that my dad was such a huge inspiration to me, male's mental health is really close to my heart. And I think there is, uh, you know, um, a lot of stigma. There is, um, still a lot of shame, um, for men to see a psychologist, to seek professional help. Uh, because men actually, I think men are even harder on themselves than women. It's very difficult for men to uh, admit to themselves. Uh, maybe it would be good, good idea to, uh, seek uh, help, professional help. And you know, nobody is made of stone. 
we are all human beings, males or females. We all have emotions. We all have our challenges uh, in our lives. And there is absolutely no shame and no stigma for men to ask for help or seek help. And so I am actually pleased to see that the number of men seeking professional help is increasing. So this is really, really good to see. And it's really good to see that many uh, people who are out in public space, like artists or athletes or people who are, who are um, known, they actually um, say out loud that, yes, they suffered uh, depression because depression can touch anybody. It's not uh, that, you know, somebody, something is wrong with someone. We can experience depressive states, depressive moods at any stage of our lives for different reasons. Uh, so my, my, this is my passion, really. Uh, my work is my passion. And I think I'm really blessed because of that. Uh, I absolutely love and enjoy doing what I'm doing. And the best reward for me is to see my clients uh, coming to me and saying that uh, talking to me, working with me has made really good and permanent positive change in their lives. Yeah. Oh, you can just tell that you have such passion for it, honestly. And like, I think what you said there about men, you know, men's mental health, would you actually see kind of trends in like differences between men and women in terms of like when they come to you? For example, would men kind of wait until almost like a last resort or at a later stage in their kind of journey compared to women or anytime I hear of a, a male or a guy going to therapy, it's often like they've been encouraged by like a fem like a woman in their life, you know, like a girlfriend or a, a sister or something. So is that something that you like notice? Yes, I did notice that, uh, that men come to see or come to seek professional help uh, being encouraged by their um, female partners. And, you know, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think it's uh, beautiful that men actually say, okay, I'm going to see someone for whatever reasons. <laughs> um, maybe they just want, you know, the partner to, you know, be off their heads. But um, uh, when they come in, um, you know, it's sometimes it's the very first time for, for uh, my male clients to see a psychologist. And it's understandable. They feel a bit stressed, a bit awkward, uh, but they do have the courage to open up. You know, they do have the courage to open up and they do have the courage um, to speak about what is, uh, what is the struggle, what is the challenge in their lives. And so, so yes, but I see, I see men also coming to see me because they realize themselves that, that they can't live like that anymore. You know, the, the different, different situations, different behaviors, different reactions they observed uh, in themselves are no longer uh, beneficial to them and they see a need for change. So it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of mix, but yes. I'd say um, most men come here to come to me, get my observation from my practice. Uh, and they say like, oh, you know, my partner thinks I need to speak to someone. <laughs> but 
Yeah. But as I said, I think it's great they 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 take the courage and they do and they they seek help. Yeah. And would you say there's like greater barriers for men getting help in compared to women? I wouldn't call it barriers because uh, the help is available to everybody. There is no mm, limitations. Um, I think my reflection, my observation is that maybe the reason that many that that many uh, professionals who have a therapy tailored for men's needs, direct, you know, because we are different, okay? Women and, and men in our psychology, in our emotions, in our perception of the world, we are different. Um, on the other hand, we are, we are not that different, but um, I think uh, something tailored specifically for, for uh, men's needs and maybe a male psychologist, you know, speaking to men, and telling uh, them that there is hope for them available as well. I wouldn't think about it as a barrier, more yeah. about awareness and um, availability uh, that the men feel like, oh, okay, this is something for me. I can, you know, I can be, sa I can feel safe there. I, I know a lot of people, they don't want to go to therapy and that's their own decision. But what would you say to someone, like if you know someone that is struggling with their mental health or in some way, how how do we support that person if they don't want to go to therapy? What can we do for a person that is struggling? To be honest with you, if somebody doesn't want to go to therapy, there is nothing you can do. You can't make somebody. And even if they agree to come to the therapy because they don't have this, this agreement with themselves, it might not be effective. Uh, what we can do, we can, we can always... Um, be there for that person, say, listen, if you want to talk, I'm here there, um, for you, uh, but we can't force anybody. And um, you, 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 uh, you mentioned in the beginning, if somebody doesn't want to go to a therapy, going to a therapy, seeing a psychologist or psychotherapist is actually an act of bravery and great courage because I'm admitting to myself that not everything is right in my life. Well, we may be not right that, you know, I need help. And that is something, uh, you know, it affects your perception of self. Your, uh, it affects your feeling of control in your life. Okay. Because I, I'm not holding it. I'm not holding my word. I, I feel helpless. I'm in despair. I don't know what to do. I feel stuck. You know, we want to be able to have that feeling that, oh, okay, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm in charge. I'm in charge in my life. And uh, quite often, um, admitting to yourself, no, I'm not in charge. I need help. Or that might be very difficult for, for, for some people. You know, that might be some uh, very difficult. But you, I believe asking for help is, is an act of courage and it's a strength. Yeah, because nobody true. knows everything, you know. We, 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 we don't have an answer for every question. And I think as well, a lot of people think that therapy is like the last resort or there's something really terrible that's happened if you're someone that goes to therapy. But like, what would you say if someone's like unsure of whether they should go or they shouldn't go? Like, how do you know when, you know, therapy might be something that would help you? 
I believe therapy is helpful at any stage of your life. I don't think therapy is lost resort. When you hit the proverbial bottom, you know, that's last resort and it's probably a little bit too late. Well, not too late in a, in a, in a, in a bad way, but it's good to speak to somebody when you are going through changes in your life. Let's say you change your job. Let's say your children move out from the family home and they, you know, studying or living somewhere else. When you lose someone, maybe, maybe you experience a death of loved one. Maybe your relationship falls apart. Maybe something else happens. It's always good to talk to someone about those changes. Because those changes uh, make us feel in certain way. And sometimes people think like, oh my God, I have to be in therapy like every week. At the beginning, depending on your situation, and uh, it's up to the decision of the professional. It can be every week, it can be every two weeks. But if you feel you are in charge of your life and there are, you know, because we always have challenges in your life, difficult times. Um, it's good to even once a month see someone and just, you know, have this, as I call it, kind of maintenance meeting and just say, you know, go through your month, see this happens, that happens. And you don't always have to think about, uh, or speak to about the bad things. You can talk about great things. You know, you can take, you can speak like, oh my God, this happened, that happened. This is my achievement. I feel so amazing. And, and that's great too. And that's great too. You know, speak about good things. So therapy is not always doom and gloom and tears and and sadness. Yes, it is. It is true. But uh, there is nothing preventing you about uh, from speaking to your therapist about, you know, I had just great achievement and, you know, I want to share that with you. And that can be very beneficial as well to look at your achievements. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I think a lot of people, when they think of therapy, they don't think about talking about their achievements, you know? Exactly. And that is one of the cognitive distortions that we minimize our achievements and we maximize our failures. Yeah. You know? Yes. It's like, let's say I tell you, oh my God, Kira, you are doing so well. Like, I'm so amazed with your progress. And you would say, like, ah, come on, it's nothing. Instead of saying, oh, thank you very much. I'm so happy that you see that. I'm proud of myself too, because I've achieved a lot. Yes, you see the difference? Areas in our lives that need corrections, improvement, and so on. And that's fine. That's fine too. We are, we, we are not perfect. You know, nobody's perfect. And we are just, life is our journey towards excellence. So we're just getting better every day. Oh, I love that. If you wouldn't mind just explaining maybe the difference between a psychologist, a therapist, a psychotherapist, because I think it's something that the words are used interchangeably, but what actually is the difference between those titles? So a psychiatrist is a person who studies medicine. Generally speaking, I know it can vary from country to country, but generally speaking, psychiatrist is a person who studies medicine. And then they chose psychiatry as the specialty. They're going to work as psychiatrists, so they choose that path. But psychiatrists are medicine doctors. Okay. Uh, psychologists, uh, you have a title. You are either, again, it's different from country to country, depends on the educational system. 
in my country is the master's, is yeah. the master of, of arts in psychology. Here, I think it's the master of science and there is also bachelor. And usually you get that from university or the educational institution that gives you that title. Psychotherapist. Psychologists can be psychotherapists if they choose to study psychotherapy and go that path. But you don't have to be a psychologist to be a psychotherapist. You can be a nurse and then you can decide, oh, I'm actually going to go into different routes on my career. I'm going to change my career path and they can go to a psychotherapy course, whether it's Gestalt or cognitive behavioral t- therapy or whatever, whatever therapy they feel comfortable they want to study. And they, after they finish, they have a title, um, psychotherapist in Gestalt or something like that. So psychologist doesn't have to be psychotherapist, can be, but psychotherapist uh, may not be a psychologist. You can be whoever, you know, social worker, nurse, and sometimes people who retired and they don't want to just go on retirement and do nothing, or they just don't, want, you know, and they go for psychotherapy courses and they, they do psychotherapy on their retirement. And there is just one important difference as well. In terms of prescribing pharma medication, only psychiatrists can prescribe, and your GP, of course, but yeah. the psychologists and psychotherapists, they don't have the capacity to prescribe medication they, they, because they are not medicine doctors, so they can't prescribe medication. Okay, that makes sense. And then I know the words therapy and counseling are used kind of interchangeably. Could you explain the difference or if there is a difference between those two things? To be honest, I'm confused myself. <laughs> so therapy, psychotherapy. Okay, psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is when you go to psychotherapists or psychologists for psychotherapists and they operate in, let's say, Gestalt framework and they follow certain steps or the line of working that uh, Gestalt prescribes. And you have steps and there is whatever sessions. Counseling, I think, is more wider. It's it's more flexible. It's not necessarily prescribed or not necessarily adhering to one particular uh, therapy uh, narrative. So in a way, I am a therapist because I am hypnotherapist. So Mm -hmm. I use hypnotherapy in my work. But I am um, so-called integrative psychologist, meaning that I am using different tools from different approaches. Okay, perfect. Thank you for clarifying that because I think it could be a bit confusing. I put up a poll on my Instagram and I've gotten a few like votes for different things to talk about. And one of the biggest things that people want to know about is behavior change. It's something that is so huge for like a nutritionist or a PT because, you know, you can give the perfect meal plan or training program, but a lot of the time it's not actually about that it's about getting someone to actually change their habits long term and change these behaviors that they might have had for years so like as a psychologist what would you say are the main things that you need to look at if you want long-term behavior change start slow okay because behaviors are are rooted in our emotions so from a nutrition perspective, if somebody is not eating well and that affects their body and their satisfaction of themselves and how they look like, you need to look at what 
is in your diet and why. Food gives us the sense of comfort and pleasure. And that's normal because the, the, our first connection with, with another person is after we are born, the mother holds us and feeds us. So this gives us that sense of security and safety and love and acceptance and all that. So in terms of changing your habits, you need to start with one change at a time. Why? Because we don't like changes. Our brains don't like changes. Evolutionarily speaking, whatever the habit we are in, whatever situation we are in, that situation, that habit is known, it's familiar, and familiarity gives us the feel of feeling safe, secure, because I know what to expect, and that gives me some kind of comfort. Even though the situation might not be good for you, or your habit might not be good for you, but because of that familiarity, it gives you that comfort. I know it's paradoxical, but that's, that's, that's how it is. Uh, anything that's unknown, everything that's unknown, everything that is unfamiliar evolu from the evolutionary point of view, it can be dangerous because I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what's going to happen to me if I start doing something different, something new. I don't know what's going to happen. So how am I going to cope if I leave that dysfunctional toxic relationship? What's going to happen to me if I stop eating whatever? Change always comes with fear. And that's normal. That's normal. So acknowledge that. You know, don't try to force yourself because forcing yourself, it can work only for a certain amount of time. But when the crisis comes, you will revert back to your uh, old habits. That's how it works. So if somebody wants to change... Uh, let's say eating habits, habit, I would suggest look at what you're eating, look at what you can stop doing. Just one small thing, okay? If you eat, I don't know, a pack of crisps every day, eat a pack of crisps every second day, okay? For a week. And then next week, eat three packs of crisps in a week. So every whatever day. Yeah. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and so on, so on. Okay, those are simple examples, but generally speaking, look at what you can do. Because if you throw all those changes on yourself, you will, you're changing your diet from now on. You are avid meat eater, and now you will become vegan, and you're going to go to the gym for four days a week. That can last three, six months, but then there will be, a, you know, collapse. You will lose the energy, you will be frustrated, you're not going to have the energy and motivation to, to continue because it's too much. It's like shock to the system. Just start slow. Just start slow. You don't have to go to the gym four days a week, but maybe twice a week. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if you're eating, I don't know, a bar of chocolate every day, change that chocolate to something else, maybe dates or whatever, and eat every second day or every third day. So basically, it is starting small, but make sure that when you introduce that change in your life, stick to it for a week, two, three weeks. So your body and your mind gets time to get used to that change. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think as well, it's just setting expectations for yourself. I think 
that's something that you've said to me before. It's like, lower your expectations, but don't lower the standards. That's something you said to me before. Could you please explain that in your, your, your own way? Okay. Well, expectations, it's another trick that we play on ourselves. Many people struggle with perfection. Okay. So they set the bar for themselves. So those are the expectations or the goal. We can call it a goal that you set for yourself. I want to be whatever it is. Okay. But in order for us to achieve goal, to meet expectations, we need to assess our resources that we have. Do we have resources to meet that goal? Okay. So I don't know. I want to be an astronaut by the end of the year, but like, that's not going to happen. I don't have the resources for it. Okay. But if I say to myself, okay, by the end of next year, I want to achieve X, Y, Z. I say, okay, what are my resources? And your resources are your emotional resources, your physical resources. So in terms of nutrition and, and exercising, the goal needs to be achievable for you because we don't live in a vacuum. We, we all have responsibilities, you know, work, school, children, whatever it is. Okay. And again, that is a change. If you set yourself an expectation, that is also a change. But I think the most important thing is that you look at your expectation in detail because people say sometimes, oh, I have to be the best. That's fine. But what does it mean to be the best? The best comparing to whom? How do you know you'll be the best? What will give you the feedback that, okay, you did that and you are the best? So we are operating on that very superficial terminology, but we don't think about what it actually means. Okay. So I want to be skinny, like, but okay. But what it means to you, I want to be happy. That's, that's my favorite one. I want to be happy. Okay. What happiness means to you? And then there is the expectations just lower the bar because we set very high expectations for ourselves. So everything has to be perfect. And because we don't assess our resources. We are unable to reach that goal, that expectation. And then we beat ourselves for not achieving that expectation, but not having the compassion for us saying like, okay, but I didn't have the resources to achieve that goal. And then that links in with this internal monologue that everybody has that, oh, I'm not worth anything. I'm not this, I'm that, I'm stupid. I can't amount to anything. Everything I do, it's a disaster and so on, so on. And that leads, you know, to depression, anxiety, procrastination, and just basically overall disaster. So just to summarize, look at your expectations, look at your goal, what you want to achieve, breaking down it detail, in details. What are the standards? Okay, so how good it has to be. You have to have some kind of measurement system. And then look at your resources. And then set it in time and then break it down. It's better to set small goals in your journey to the big goal rather than set the big goal and then just struggling to get there. Because yeah. your journey to your goal is not linear. It's just around and in circles and two steps forward, one step back because such is life. Does that make sense? I think that was such a good answer. I just, I'm in awe of the way you explain things. And you mentioned there the internal monologue. I think this is something that is so 
huge. It's like when we're kids, it's like we have this positive view of ourselves, like when we're young and we have this kind of sense of value in ourselves. And I think somewhere along the way, it's like we all learn that. So could you please explain what happens to our internal monologue as we develop and how can we bring that internal monologue to a kinder place if, some, if self-criticism is something that we struggle with? So your internal monologue, it's so-called inner critic. That's mm-hmm. your inner critic. So listen to your inner, inner critic and identify whose voice is that because it's not your voice. As you said, we are born without the concepts being bad or good. We learn that from uh, the environment. Interactions we have is our family. The interaction with our parents, our siblings, and whatever the child does, however the child does. And in return, it hears from the parents, don't do that. That's stupid. Uh, You're bad. Or I don't know. Uh, if you eat dinner, you will get, uh, I don't know, dessert or whatever it is. Oh, you have such and such great and Mary has much better. What's wrong with you? So if we're bombarded with that negative feedback about our lives, our actions, uh, children start internalizing it. And that is the foundation of our belief system. And then we grew up with the feeling that I'm not good enough with the feeling that I have to strive, I have to be more, I have to get more, I have to be better and better, because underlying motive is um, search for acceptance and love. Because if we hear that from our parents, that you're never good enough, we as children try to do things that will give us their love and acceptance, okay? If the parent says, oh, do this or that, and then I'll be happy. Or, oh, you did this, I don't love you anymore. So that teaches children that love is conditional. And love should be unconditional. And yes, children are, they can be wild and they can do, you know, loads of frustrating things for parents. But parents are the guides for child in this world. You know, so whatever we learned from our parents, whatever message they gave us, that's our message in us, that we think this is our belief, that this is right, but it's not right because nobody is always bad. Nobody always fails. And we have that drive to be perfect, always perfect, but it's impossible, you know? Yeah. And I think as well, you touched on there, like the, the want to please our parents. It's like a natural thing. One thing that uh, people wanted to know about more was, to talk about people pleasing and boundaries and like what actually causes us to be people pleasers or to have poor boundaries and how can we use that to understand and help us to move away from that? So if you're a people pleaser, what it means, it means that you value needs of other people more than your own. What I said before, that teaches you that your needs are not important, that your needs are not valued. That especially if you have younger siblings, okay, let's say you're the oldest and you have younger siblings. I'm sure many of you heard like, oh, come on, give him, her the time. Be You're older, be smarter, okay, be kinder. Oh, come on, you're older, be, be whatever, okay? Meaning that your needs, you're older, but that it means your needs are not important. Other people's needs are important. 
And there is the message from the parents to the child as well. To love me, you have to be such and such. I mean, it's not like literally they say, but that's the message that children hear that in order for me to be lovable by my parents, I have to do X, Y, Z. And again, we internalize that behavior and we grow up and all of that is in our subconscious. We're not aware of that. It's not like every day we are consciously saying to ourselves, okay, this is what I have to do in order for people to love me, but that's what we do. Because we want that love and acceptance. And we were stripped of the right to love ourselves and to put our need first. That makes sense. I often hear, you know, I, I really like helping people. Okay, that's great. Helping is, is very important. You know, we can't survive as a species if we don't help and support each other. But my question is, what's the motivation? for helping, you know? Is it because it makes you feel good? Is it because you have that feeling that people accept you, people like you, people love you, you know? And what would you say is kind of a healthy answer or an unhealthy answer to that question? Uh, well, everybody needs to look into their own motivation. But generally speaking, the motivation to help people is to feel good about themselves. And I'm not saying that helping people doesn't make you feel good. It does. But what is your main drive? Be, be, because we need to, we need to make a, a differentiation between helping people because I know I can help them and they are in distress. So I'm going to help them. I have the resources again, back to the resources. I have the resources to help them. Or, oh my God, somebody's suffering. Oh, I have to help them. I have to help them. I must help them. Because if I don't help, I feel bad that I didn't help somebody. It's like, you know, giving the last shirt to somebody in need. But yeah. that makes no sense because if I give you my last cold, I'm going to be cold. So mm -hmm. instead, that's the resources. Instead, listen, I can share my soup with you because I have enough for two. Mm -hmm. All right. And people have this drive to help people, but how many times you ask the person, do you need my help? Such a good point. That helping is very selfish. I have to help you because I have to help you. I have the need to help because it's going to make me feel good. And mm -hmm. I hear that very often. I hear, but how do you know that person wants your help? Do you think it's almost like an ego thing? It is and it isn't, you know, it's the belief system that you have because we want to feel good about ourselves all the time. And however, we were molded, if I can use that word, in our past years, that's our behavior. Ultimately, we want connection. Ultimately, we want that love, acceptance and, and belonging. That's what we need. Yeah. And that activates through different behaviors. And I, I hear that very often. I love to help people. Okay. But at the same time, those people who love to help, they don't ask for help. Why is that? Because asking for help is perceived as weakness. It's either weakness or shame. Yeah. How do we kind of abandon that thought process that it is weakness or shame? If you're someone that 
it feels like, oh God, I'm that person that I feel like I can't ask for help. How do you move out of that mindset and move to a place where you, you don't feel that shame and you don't feel like it's weak to ask for help? What are the steps that you can practically take to get to a point where you actually feel like, you know what, I can ask for help? So let me say that asking for help is not weakness and it's not shame. If you ask for help, that's, that's a sign of strength because you recognize you don't have the resources. And listen, it's not, nobody knows everything. Nobody can do everything. Okay. If my car breaks down, so I don't pretend I, I know it and I'm going to fix it myself. I just bring it to the garage. Okay. Yeah. I would recommend, you know, go for counseling or go for, for psychotherapy because there are things you can do yourself. You can listen to your internal monologue. You can analyze, think about the source, the origins of that uh, behavior. But I think it's good and it's safe for the person just to go to psychotherapy or for counseling because counseling, psychotherapy provide safe space uh, to recognize those behaviors and and work with them. It can quite uh, often very emotional. If you recognize that you don't ask for help, ask yourself why you don't ask for help. What does it mean to you? And what did you first learn that asking for help is wrong? or it's weak or it's shameful. And I think as well, like as a coach or a nutritionist or a PT or whatever, I think like a lot of our work is supporting someone in terms of their mindset. And it's a lot that isn't to do with food or training. And at what point do you kind of say, okay, I'm, I'm your coach and I'm going to help and support you, but I'm also not a psychologist. Where would you draw the boundaries there? At what point do you think you should say, okay, Actually, I think it's, I need to refer you on to someone else because this is outside my scope. I think it's for you to draw those boundaries that, you know, this is what you do and that's it. People have that need to talk about their lives and, and that's, that's normal. That's okay. Sometimes maybe they need advice. Sometimes they need to offload. Again, I think psychotherapy or counseling is the appropriate place for offloading because you know, it's for your own safety as well, uh, for safety of all the coaches or nutritionists that people can tell you things that can overwhelm you or can trigger something in you. So it's important for you to, to draw those boundaries. And if you notice people sharing personal life, personal stories, you can say that you appreciate that, but you know, you're not qualified and suggest them maybe to consider speaking to a professional because, you know, from my experience, we are so different, but we're really the same. Yeah. We all experience difficult, traumatic situations. And in adult life, we're dealing with lots of different stressful situations. So it is better to, it is best for both sides, you and your client to actually speak to a professional person who can help with that because I know it can be overwhelming. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think it's good advice because I think it, it's kind of like a gray area and it's hard to know, okay, where do I draw all these lines? So yeah, it's a, thank you so much for explaining that. As well, I got a couple of questions on my Instagram that people just wanted to ask you. Um, so if you don't mind, I might just ask them now. Sure. Um, so the first question was, has mental health awareness reached a point where it's a glamorization of mental illness? 
I want to say in a way, yes. In a way, no. There is definitely greater awareness about mental health, which is really, really, really good. Really yeah. good. We need to remove the stigma. We need to remove the stigma from people who suffer different mental health uh, problems, being depression or whatever it is, because uh, it's not possible to go through life, you know, smiling and laughing and happy uh, because life, life is challenging. It can be challenging. I believe life is beautiful, but it can be very challenging at times. And I think it's good that there are people from uh, different industries speaking about mental health and their own mental health issues. Sometimes I think, yes, it can be interpreted as it's so glamour to have a mental illness, but this is outside of our control, how it is perceived. I think the good thing is that it is raising awareness, but raising awareness about mental health, it's one thing, but another thing is accessibility to mental health professionals. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. I think it's important to kind of get both sides there. Um, so thank you for that. Next question is, this is from another business owner. So I have poor mental health while being self-employed and I'm wanting to take time off, but I'm scared it it will result in my business failing. Any advice? Well, I can't give any business advice. Uh, listen, I, I understand. I understand. Uh, I'm self-employed So, and I'm familiar to those emotions. Being self-employed, being a business owner is challenging for different reasons. But one thing I would like to point out, the person who asked that question is fearful. And that's another thing that our lives are being driven by fear, usually by fear of lack. Yeah. I'm not going to have enough money. I'm not going to have enough clients, this, that, and the other. All right. So mental health has no price. Generally speaking, your health has no price. If you feel you need to take time off, take time off, but make a plan, make a plan. How long is your break is going to last? How much time uh, you need uh, for you to get back to your health and make a plan about the business. Uh, is there anybody else who can help you with the business? Is there anything else that can give you this passive income? It, you know, maybe speak to some business advisors who know more than me about that, it is about having a strategy, having a strategy, having a plan B. And I understand that fear, but it is a bit of a vicious circle. You run your business, but your mental health suffers, but you don't take a break because you are afraid that you're not going to have enough money. And that we are living in that perpetuating cycle of fear. I'm not going to have enough money and so on. And that's going back to your internal uh, monologue. That's the message you're feeding your mind. And your mind will give you what you believe in because that's how a mind works. Your mind is your servant. So it, it will give you what you tell him to do. It will do what you tell your mind to do because your belief system determines the quality of your life. In psychology, there is a term self-fulfilling prophecy. So in short story, if you believe you're, you're not going to do it, you, you won't be able to do it. Because that's your belief system. Okay. Uh, so going back to that question, as I said, health has no price. Mental health has no price. And if you neglect your mental health, your business will suffer one way or the other. 
because you won't be able to run your business at your full capacity. So make a plan, maybe get some advice from mentors or business advisor, um, how to make sure that you don't suffer financially. I think that's really, really good advice. Thank you for that. Just to sum up, do you have any words that you live by or a life motto that you would kind of take into your everyday life? Remember to be kind to yourself first. Before you're kind to everybody else, be kind to yourself first. You make yourself your be- your own best friend. You know? Because we would do everything and we would go, you know, extra mile for our friends, family, and so on. But we forget about ourselves. And just to paraphrase Diane von Furstenberg, she's a fashion designer, and I absolutely love that quote, that the only person that's going to be with you for the rest of your life is yourself. So why not to treat yourself like your best friend? That's such a nice way to go get the podcast. Thank you so much. I think everything you said, I think it's going to help people so much. And the way you explain things so eloquently, I think I just, you, you have helped me so much in my life and I can't thank you enough. Um, just before I let you go, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, where is the best place to contact you? The best place would be my email address, contact at psychologyscore.ie or through my Facebook page. And you can put my link to my website and my email um, and my phone number. So if somebody wants to contact me, there are different ways to contact. I'll put them all in the show notes, but I, I really can't thank you enough. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Kira, for, for having me. Thank you for inviting me. And um, I'm delighted to, you know, share uh, my, my, my knowledge, my experience with, with other people. And uh, yes, thank you so much. And I'm really, really happy to see you advancing in your career as well. Brilliant. So